Let's get to the lesson on the uh, humanity of, of Jesus. So turn with me to the third chapter of the book of Genesis. And while you're turning there, just a statement from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then down in the 14th verse, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I think already you have had someone speak on the, uh, of the uh, deity of Christ. There's no way really that you can separate these things out. Uh, I am a human being, body, soul, and spirit, but I defy anyone to take a surgeon's scalpel and divide a human being into those parts. Uh, this Bible is the Word of God, and yet uh, it, it obviously is written in the words of men. How do you separate out uh, the Word of God from the vehicle by means of which it's communicated, uh, namely uh, human beings? You can't do that. And you cannot separate out the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. Back during the centuries that followed the New Testament, there were serious debates that were conducted about this matter. You know, who is Jesus? Uh, is he fully God? Well, if he's fully God, he can't be human. Uh, there were those, on the other hand, that uh, argued that if he is human, he can't be divine. And so therefore, uh, there developed a system of thought that really goes back to the root of a word, which means to seem or to appear. That he really was not human, he only appeared to be human. Uh, he kind of uh, uh, took on a human form like angels, but uh, there was no literally uh, assuming flesh of man, only the appearance of flesh. And we could uh, go into detail on that, and it would be worthless uh, because those debates raged on for centuries, and they still do. Uh, you have people like the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, that believe that man does not have a spirit that lives on beyond the body. Uh, when man dies, he dies like the little dog Grover. He's dead all over. His breath leaves, and that breath is in the memory of God, and at a certain time, God recreates the human being. Well, they really said for three days, if I understand their teaching correctly, that, that Jesus uh, did not exist. And then he was recreated as uh, an angelic being, the highest of angelic beings. There are all kinds of theories that... Uh, that cause people to get themselves into trouble uh, because they are not willing to hold both horns of the bull, as I would say. Uh, there are certain things in Scripture that appear to be contradictory. 
we technically call these paradoxes. They are opposites, and in order to have the truth, you have to have both of these. You have to have the uh, deity of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. There's personality. And the Word was God. There is the divine nature of the, of the Godhood. Uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we will try as best we can to, uh, uh, to sort this out. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, in the curse that was imposed on the serpent, the Lord said in that particular verse, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The word seed is, is a collective noun. It can mean one seed or a million seeds. And a lot of people want to make this a plurality. And there are reasons that they think that way. However, uh, if you will notice the pronouns following uh, this matter of your seed, it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his feet. It's interesting that the uh, Latin Vulgate, uh, the Roman Catholic Bible, says she shall do this, uh, referring actually to the uh, Virgin Mary uh, in their interpretation of that. But he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise uh, his heel. The idea of bruising here means literally to crush. Uh, the, the figure of speech is taken from uh, the uh, ordinary idea that we have of the conflict between man and, uh, and a snake. Uh, you, you reach down with your foot and you're going to stomp the snake in the head. And in the process, the snake bites your heel. Uh, you kill the snake, but there is a mortal wound that has been inflicted. Eventually, the poison sets in and you die. We, of course, know the rest of the story that uh, through the resurrection of Jesus, uh, that death was overcome and he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. As to the race, the book of Genesis goes on to say that Jesus would come from the lineage of Shem, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, Shem would be called today uh, Sem, the Semites. Meaning by that, uh, groups like uh, uh, the uh, Jewish people or the uh, Arabian people, the uh, ones that come out of the Arabian Peninsula and others around in that Near Eastern uh, area. Uh, Jesus would come through the lineage of Shem. He would come through the family of Abraham. He would come through the tribe of Judah when those ten tri or 12 tribes were formed. Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from, uh, from him until Shiloh come. Uh, the peace is going to come. The next great passage, of course, is that in Genesis the 12th chapter, where there the promise was made to Abraham, uh, in a, a very uh, detailed way, beginning in the first verse. The Lord had said to Abraham, 
and uh, his name was shortened at this particular point to Abram. Get out of your country from your kindred, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Uh, if we go on over later in the book, uh, that is changed a little bit to say, in your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. It's interesting that at the time God gave this promise to Abraham, Abraham is not yet circumcised. His circumcision takes place in the 17th verse, I mean the 17th chapter. Uh, he and his son were circumcised uh, about the same time. What this means is that Abraham was a Gentile when God made the promise to him. Uh, there are those who would argue that these promises uh, to make a great nation, uh, to bless all nations through the seed of Abraham, uh, refers to the Jewish nation. Uh, that is not the case. Abraham himself was not a Jew. The Jews didn't uh, come into existence until a long time after this. Israel was not, uh, was not named until uh, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. So you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the nation of Israel is not formed until you have the 12 tribes entering into the promised land. And then uh, you have them coming together as a nation of people. There are about six chapters in the book of Genesis in which that promise is made to Abraham and repeated to him. There is uh, one instance in which it is given to Isaac, and there are two instances in which it is given to Jacob. So the promise that in your seed all nations uh, of the earth shall be blessed is, is really about the most significant prophecy of the Old Testament when it comes to the matter of its fulfillment in the New. But later on, this lineage was narrowed down again. It was going to come through King David. And uh, I want to direct your mind to uh, a, f a few things here. Turn with me, first of all, if you will, to the book of Psalms. And uh, let's look at Psalm 89. It's a highly significant psalm with regard to this matter of the promise that God made to David. Uh, look at verses 3 and 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed will be established forever and build up your throne to all generations. In fact, down in uh, verse 27 beginning, as you uh, read forward at that particular place, 
Also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Uh, it doesn't mean literally a firstborn, it is figuratively a firstborn. Uh, one who has the most prominent position, uh, just as the literal firstborn son uh, of a man had the prominent position, received the double inheritance. So uh, David was going to be this in the eyes of the Lord. Now, not only is that true, but the name David actually became a description or a title for uh, the Son of God. Uh, first of all, look over, if you will, uh, to the minor prophets. Uh, in uh, Hosea, the third chapter, and the fifth verse, we have this statement that is made uh, by divine inspiration. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and fear the Lord and His goodness in the latter days. Now, this puts us beyond the captivities, beyond the Assyrian captivity of Israel, beyond uh, the Babylonian captivity of Judah, uh, way on down to the last days, the latter days, and the people are going to seek David their king. Well, David's been dead uh, for centuries at that time. He lived, let's say, roughly 1,000 B.C. That's not exactly accurate, but it's a, a good thing to uh, kind of remember it by. Uh, and uh, yet here is a prophecy, a prediction, uh, that uh, the people will seek David their king. Uh, go back, for instance, to the book of Jeremiah. Over in the 30th chapter of the uh, book of Jeremiah, and the fourth verse, we have a similar statement that is made. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I'm not, uh, it's in the ninth verse, I'm sorry. They shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, this is said again in Ezekiel the 34th chapter, and again in Ezekiel the 37th chapter. David is going to be their king. Uh, the Jewish interpreters understood this correctly, that this is a reference to the Messiah, uh, the anointed one, the Christ that was going to come. Uh, and so we have moved from the seed of woman uh, to the seed of Abraham to the seed of of David. Now the problem with this as far as the physical lineage of David is concerned, David's succession ceases. At the time of the Babylonian captivity there were uh, three last kings. There was Jehoiakim, uh, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Uh, I, I want to read you a statement about Jehoiakim uh, that is found in uh, the uh, uh, Old Testament in, in the uh, uh, book of, of Jeremiah. Write this man down as childless. 
none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David. Write this man childless. Now, uh, if you went back to 1 Chronicles chapter 3, you would find that he had sons that could have succeeded him on the throne. But the succession of kings is ended. Now there is a, another king, Zedekiah, but he was the uncle, I think it was, of Jehoiakim. He was not a successor of Jehoiakim. And then over in a passage in Ezekiel chapter 21, there is a very interesting prophecy down in the 27th verse. It says, overturn or overthrow, the new King James says, overthrow until he comes whose right it is. Uh, David would not have anyone continue his dynasty as king on his throne until such time as the Messiah would come. It was his who, whose right it is. And he is the one who would sit and rule upon David's throne. But other passages in the Old Testament uh, spoke concerning the, the Christ humanity. Now notice, he is of the seed of woman, which is human. He is of the seed of Abraham, which is human. He is of the seed of David, which is human. And when he came to this earth, he was going to be rejected, according to Psalm 118. He was going to be put to death. And the description in Psalm 22 uh, is uh, very much like uh, crucifixion. Uh, my hands and my feet they have pierced. Isaiah chapter 53, where uh, the Lord's servant dies for the sins of the people, to make atonement for the sins of the people. And those two passages are quite interesting. Psalm 22, when you read it, uh, is personal. It is the Christ himself crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, but in Isaiah 53, it is like a reporter that is looking at the Christ, looking at his death, describing what his death signified, that it was going to be uh, an atonement for the sins of the world. Over in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, we have that passage which talks about uh, the Christ going to be born of a virgin. Uh, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which interpreted means God with us. And that statement is quoted, by the way, over in the New Testament. Uh, but not only uh, do we have the specifics of a virgin birth, we have the place of, of birth. In Micah chapter 5, in verses 1 through 5, Bethlehem of Judea is the place that is chosen. Now there's some interesting things about that. I, I sometimes use this as an illustration. I guess uh, uh, having driven over uh, to the Gulf of Mexico, I can make it quite well. If you go across state, 
you will find the Cape Canaveral, for a while called Cape Kennedy, uh, where they uh, sent the astronauts into space and all the way to the moon. We're very familiar with that. Uh, there was a science fiction author uh, back in the 1800s, I, I believe it was the 1800s, Jules Verne. He predicted that uh, man would uh, fly to the moon. He predicted that it would take place in the state of Florida. He even named the spaceship. Not only is that true, but uh, he said that it was going to take place on the west coast of Florida. Well, uh, he was a, a good scientist. He had a great imagination. Uh, I don't know whether they took the lead of Jules Verne or if Jules Verne was just that good at guessing what was going to take place and putting together the pieces of the puzzle, but uh, he didn't get it right. Now, if, if you take collectively all of the sayings that are found about Jesus in the Old Testament, it would be that you not only got all of the things right that Jules Verne did, but you would get the launch at the right coast. You would even name the astronaut that was going to be the captain of the ship. Uh, but obviously, uh, no man has that ability uh, to be that precise. When we uh, turn over into the New Testament to that statement, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, that is uh, really enlarged upon a great deal, if you'll turn with me, over to the book of Philippians, the second chapter. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning down in the fifth verse, Paul is encouraging the Philippians to have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a slave, uh, my translation here says bond servant, and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of uh, of the cross. So many things that are significant here. It says he took the form of a slave. It says he came in the likeness of men. And it says he was found in appearance as a man. Uh, the idea of having the form of a slave uh, suggests the humility, the, the abject surrender that Jesus submitted himself to. Coming the likeness of men uh, means that the Word became flesh, as we are flesh. And uh, found in appearance as a man means that you would have uh, seen Jesus as you would have seen any man his contemporary. Uh, he just looked like an ordinary person. Uh, there are all kinds of artist conceptions of Jesus Christ. I don't know what he looked like, but he looked like an ordinary, middle-to-lower-class Hebrew of that day and age. 
Uh, and then we pretty well have things nailed down with regard to that. Beginning in Matthew chapter 1, there is described the uh, birth of Jesus. And in verses 18 through 25, there is described there the birth of Jesus to Mary, who was a virgin. Her husband had not known her at that time and did not until she brought forth her firstborn son. Uh, there, therefore, uh, was not any doubt that uh, the holy thing that was conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit. It, it, it was not, uh, this child was not uh, conceived by uh, a human male. In Matthew, the second chapter, it begins by saying that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, there's something significant about that. In the time that Jesus was born, there were two Bethlehems. There was a Bethlehem in Egypt, and there was a Bethlehem in Judea in Palestine. It wasn't the Bethlehem of Egypt, it was the Bethlehem of Judea that uh, uh, the Messiah was going to be born, and was born. He was born of a virgin. He was born in Bethlehem. And Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33, suggests uh, that he inherited the throne of his father David and was going to reign over Jacob. Now, I have uh, I've gone through a lot of these things, uh, kind of like lightning, because uh, I want to spend the time that we have on a few passages in the New Testament that that dwell on this matter of the humanity of Jesus. The contemporaries of Jesus saw him as a man. I'd like for you to turn with me over to Matthew, the 13th chapter. Uh, several things in this reading that uh, suggest that. Start with me in the uh, 13th chapter and the uh, 53rd verse. Now, it came to pass... When Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogues, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and uh, uh, Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? Uh, he looked like a man. He talked like a man. He walked like a man. But he was a wise man, and his wisdom seemed to excel the wisdom of men. And they scratched their head. Is this not the carpenter's son? In fact, uh, over in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, it says that he himself was a carpenter by trade. Uh, th these, these things just really uh, puzzled them. In John chapter 7 and verse 5, his brothers did not believe in him. And John writing that suggests that they did not believe the claims that he was making, that he indeed was the Son of God. 
in, in fact, in Mark chapter 3 and verse 21, it was declared that he was out of his mind by some of the things that he said and the things that he did. If, if we think that um, people have difficulty with the humanity of Jesus today, uh, they did when he was here upon this earth. There are a number of little things about Jesus uh, that, again, I'm going to just look at uh, very, very hurriedly because, as I said, there are about three passages I want to look at uh, in a little detail. Uh, for instance, in... Uh, the sixth chapter of Mark, in verse 31, it indicates that Jesus had to rest. He was, he was weary. In John chapter 4 and verse 6, that he was tired when he sat down by Jacob's well. In uh, Mark, the 11th chapter and the 12th verse, he was hungry. The same thing is said over in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 2, uh, when the temptations came upon him, Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was hungry. In uh, Mark chapter 3 and verse 5, uh, he uh, was indignant at what was happening, and he, uh, he, his countenance showed anger, a righteous indignation. In chapter 11, verses 15 and 16, uh, he overturned the tables of the money changers and drove them out of the temple. In the 6th uh, chapter, in the 34th verse, he showed his compassion. In chapter 10, in verse 21, he demonstrated his love. And in chapter 14 and verse 34, he exemplified his amazement. All of those are characteristics that any of us as human beings uh, would manifest. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, he grew and developed like an ordinary child. In the 19th chapter, in the 28th verse, uh, on the cross he was thirsty. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 26, uh, he weakened and uh, crumbled under the carrying of the heavy cross because of the ordeals that he had been through. In uh, chapter 23 and verse 46, he is pronounced dead. And uh, I could go on and on with passages that certainly indicate all kinds of things that suggest that he was like uh, you or I would be. But I want you to turn now to John the 8th chapter and look at the 56th verse. John chapter 8 and verse 56. Jesus is here speaking. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, uh, I think if you put the whole picture of the Gospels together, he is referring to the promise that God made to Abraham. Abraham believed God concerning the promise, and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. 
Uh, and uh, he, was, he was glad in that. In Acts chapter 3, in Peter's sermon in the city of Jerusalem, uh, following the day of Pentecost, he quotes the promise as applied to, to Jesus and his resurrection. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says that God, through the scriptures, beforehand preached the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In your seed all nations of the earth shall be blessed. So it is called the gospel. It was preached to Abraham. Jesus said, Now Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he is, he is glad in it. And then there is the matter of the atoning sacrifice. If you take uh, Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, and you would have to just read it in detail on your own because it's, uh, it's just too uh, vast for us to uh, take the time in a lesson like this uh, to cover. But Jesus is described in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 as mediator between God and man. I I'm going to suggest to you that this is one of the reasons that the Word became flesh, so that He would be qualified to be uh, a mediator. And I'll say more about that uh, uh, in, in just a moment. He lived upon this earth so that He might be able to be sympathetic with those He was going to save. All of these thoughts are going to come out in Hebrews, the second chapter, uh, the one that, I, as I say, I'm going to spend more time on. So turn there with me, if you will, uh, over to the book of Hebrews, the second chapter. I, the more and more I study this passage, the more marvelous it becomes to me. Uh, back in the first chapter, the deity of Christ is, is argued uh, very convincingly uh, from the Old Testament and from uh, the uh, position that Jesus had, pulling together passage after passage after passage of the Old Testament. But when you get over to the second chapter, the work that he accomplished among men as a man is, is described here. Uh, for instance, I want you to begin with me where in the uh, fifth verse it says, God has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. But what in a certain place testified saying, What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. Now here is a Here's a comment on that uh, Psalm 8 that is a real tongue twister, and I'm going to tell on myself. When I was probably about 20 years old, uh, down on the riverbank of the Hillsborough River, I memorized this passage of Scripture, but I memorized it wrong. And that's an easy thing to do. If you don't look at all of the grammar, and those days I didn't care that much for grammar. <laughs> uh, I, I said uh, that uh, 
He put the world in subjection to angels. But no, that's not what it says. In that he put all things in subjection under him, that is, under man, he left nothing that is not put under him. Uh, that goes back to the, to the uh, third chapter of Genesis, where, where God made man to have dominion over this world. And it suggested uh, over the fish of the sea, over the animals on the land, over the birds of heaven. Uh, he was to uh, till the land and produce from the land. It was, it was his responsibility. In a sense, he was king in the world. But sin came and he lost that position. And so it says, we now see not yet all things put under him, but now we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So why did Jesus come to the earth? Why did the Word become flesh? It says he was subjected into a position of being a little lower than the angels. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And yet he is subjected lower than angels, taking upon himself the form of man uh, and found in the likeness uh, of a man. Now before I go into some details here in, in Hebrews, the second chapter, I, I want to... Uh, Try and illustrate this as best I can. How do, you, how do you relate the deity of Christ to the humanity of Christ? And I have no idea how this was attempted last night, but, but I want to uh, allow you to imagine this. If, uh, if I had a blackboard or a whiteboard or a PowerPoint, uh, so what I'll do is I'll use the PowerPoint that I always carry with me. <laughs> I want you to, to draw a circle, and I want you to label that circle God at the top. And at the bottom, I want you to write the word glory. So here's the circle of God in His glory. And then inside that circle, I want you to draw a smaller one. And I want you to label that one man. And I want you to put at the bottom flesh. In order to understand what is going on, when, when the Word became flesh, the glory of God was uh, concealed in His humanity. Now, uh, I've messed up already <laughs> uh, without drawing it in my mind. Uh, uh, my 86-year-old mind doesn't work like it did when I was 19 years old. Uh, I've got news for you if you haven't reached that stage yet. Uh, reverse those circles. <laughs> the inside circle is God and His glory. The outside circle is man and His flesh. What happens is, is that the glory of God is encapsulated and concealed by the humanity of Jesus. Now, on one occasion, that glory broke through. You remember when it was on the Mount of Transfiguration, where His countenance 
shone brighter than the noonday sun. I guess you could say another time, though this was after Jesus was himself glorified, uh, the appearance to Saul on the road to Damascus, but especially on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, normally, it was contained, it was concealed in the humanity. On that occasion, it, it broke loose. And the voice came from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Uh, no question left to that. Now what happens uh, when Jesus ascends back to the Father and uh, is glorified? You remember he prayed to the Father in the 17th chapter of John, Glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world began. The Lord is in glory. He's going to return in glory. So now it's almost reversed. His humanity radiates with his deity. And that's the way we will see him uh, when he comes again uh, a second time uh, to receive the saints unto himself and uh, to uh, confine uh, the, the wicked upon the earth uh, to their uh, habitation. Why then did the Word become flesh? I, I want to su suggest to you that the Word became flesh in order to make atonement for sins. And that is at the very heart uh, of what is being spoken here in the book of Hebrews. Look at verses 16 and 17 of Hebrews chapter 2. I'll, I'll throw in the 16th verse. Indeed, he does not give aid, this is Jesus, does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Uh, I don't know why, but when the angels sinned, the angels were not redeemed. Uh, they were consigned to torment. They were limited uh, uh, in, in the evil that they could do. But man sinned, and God provided his own son to make atonement for the sins of the world, to die for the sins of the world. And that's why it's important that we understand that he became uh, a man, that he took on flesh. There's so many passages that really talk about this in the New Testament. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2 and verse 5. In his atonement he became a perfect mediator between God and man. Uh, when he ascended after his resurrection back to the right hand of God, sat down on his heavenly throne, which is David's throne, it, it, uh, it indicates to us that he is able to be our advocate. He is able to be our intercessor. And really we have two. We, we have the Holy Spirit as an advocate. Uh, we have Jesus Christ as an advocate. And uh, I can understand that because I sometimes watch Law and Order and there are always two lawyers that sit at each of the desks. <laughs> so... Uh, we ought not to get upset 
that we have two lawyers uh, that are speaking and, uh, and interceding on our behalf, uh, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit which he sent. Uh, but he can understand this from God's standpoint. God sees sin as heinous. God sees sin as something that cannot be tolerated. Man was not able to perfectly do the will of God, and so therefore he sent his own son to offer himself in the place of man as a curse for man, to redeem him uh, from what he could not redeem himself. He could understand the human predicament. And in the book of Hebrews, if you look at the end of the second chapter, it says this in the 17th verse. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make atonement, propitiation for the sins of the people. That's one of those words we stumble over. I, I had some wise man tell me when I was very young. Uh, Melvin, when you come across a word like that, just lower your voice and say wagon wheel and keep rolling on. And uh, uh, so don't, uh, don't worry when you stumble over words like that. Everybody else does as well. And if, uh, if they think that they are proud and know more than you do, have them read the first few chapters of First Chronicles aloud, and, and you will see how many mistakes they made. Notice that. He can be merciful to us. And he will never let us down. That's what it means by being faithful. You can depend on Jesus. Look at the end of the fourth chapter where he says something very similar. Uh, verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Uh, I don't know that I know enough about that, tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, uh, to talk intelligently about it. I just accept it for what it is. You think you have problems? You think you have difficulties in this life? The Lord understands your difficulties. He's been here. He has been through much of what you go through. The difference is, is that he did not yield to temptation, whether it was a temptation to commit a sin, or it was a temptation uh, to yield to persecution. He was willing to go to his death and not sin in order that you and I uh, might have our sins uh, remitted by his sacrifice. He can sympathize with us. And uh, aren't we glad that he came to this earth to die for us. The final thing I want to say about it is that he left us an example. Many passages uh, teach that, that we are to follow the example that he left us. But there is no more beautiful verse of scripture, I don't think in all the scripture, than found over in the book of First Peter. And I want you to turn there with me and I'm going to use this passage in closing. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is here describing uh, the death of Jesus, beginning in verse 21. For to, the, for to this you were called, and he has talked about enduring persecution, enduring suffering. For to this end were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And that's a direct quotation from Isaiah chapter 53. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Look at that expression in verse 21. He suffered leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. The word that is used there, example, is one of the most unique words probably in the Greek language. It means to write over something. Children among the Greeks often used a wax tablet. Do you remember those when you were a kid, some of you? Uh, you would buy them and uh, it had wax and it had a sheet over the top of it and a stylus and you'd write it and then you'd pull the sheet up and erase it. Well, that's a crude replica. They just, uh, they just wrote in the, in the wax itself. And very often, uh, you may remember in... I called it grammar school. What is it, elementary school now? Uh, they put the letters of the alphabet in capital letters and, and in cursive right up over the blackboard so that you could go up and practice. And, and sometimes uh, you as a parent understand this. The child would not be able to draw the letters correctly. And you say, here, let me help you. And so what you do is you put your hand over their hand and you help them write the letters of the alphabet. That's what this word is talking about. He does understand. He has left us this model. Uh, the Greek children used to take the wax that, that the teacher had written the letters of the alphabet in and they would put their pen down into the wax and follow the cut in the wax in order to do the alpha and the omega. He left us an example that we should follow in his steps. And how, and how much we sometimes uh, fail in that regard. There's a story that I first heard James Miller tell. Some of you will remember him. It was about a a man who went down in a snowstorm after it had stopped, I should say, uh, with 
quite a bit of snow on the ground, down to the back pasture fence to, to fix it. He had his tools, and uh, he's going through the snow. And his little boy is following him. And uh, he hollers out to his dad, and he said, Slow down, Daddy. I'm hitting every track. And his dad turned around, and the little boy was just lifting his foot and putting it in this hole and in this hole and this hole. If you and I can think in terms of following Jesus like that, then it'll make better people of us. But if, if we're not setting the right kind of an example, it's pretty sad. At the end of that sermon, a man came forward. Brother Miller took his confession and baptized him into Christ. And I don't know his name, I'll just say, uh, Frank, I've been coming here for meetings for 20 years. And you just sat there like a bump on a log and never responded. Why tonight? He said, Jim, he said, uh, I've got a little boy. And I've got grandchildren. And he said, I just thought about that illustration that you gave. And I don't want my boys and I don't want my grandchildren following my example. And I decided to become a Christian. It doesn't make any difference uh, who you are. It doesn't make any difference uh, how young you are. As long as you know what the gospel is all about, that you know that you're a sinner and you're willing to confess your sins and confess the name of Jesus Christ and be baptized into Christ. And it doesn't make any difference how old you are. I tell you, I used to ball up my fist and just pound it about deathbed repentance. I have a friend who's, who's dead, uh, several years older than I. Robert Turner had an expression. He said, we best not whittle on God's end of the stick. If, if a man on his deathbed wants to say, I believe in Jesus Christ and make the confession of faith, I'm going to leave that individual in God's hands. But I'm certainly not going to tell that man, you waited too long. You can't do this now. Maybe he can't, but that's God's decision. I don't have the right to make that decision. And mind you, I'm not, I'm not being the judge of an individual like that. I'm not saying that he's going to heaven, and I'm not saying he's going to hell. I'm just saying that very often we say, well, I'm too old. No, you're not. You remember the story in which the man hired workers in his vineyard? And when it came to the last man, he just barely got in a little time that day. The others had worked there 8 to 12 hours, and he probably worked 30 minutes to an hour. But he got the same amount, didn't he? And the others were upset. Why should we be upset that a person finally comes to their senses and decides that they're going to become a Christian? And if, if you're not a child of God,
or if you're a person who has not been following in the footsteps of Jesus, that's why we talk about the humanity of Jesus. He understands. He sympathizes. And he wants you to be saved. He died for you in order that you might be. Let's stand and sing.